Once again, good morning. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 16? As we are working our way through 2 Samuel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Now, as we uh, said when we first started 2 Samuel, uh, this book focuses on the life and reign of King David. And uh, as we have seen, uh, David's reign uh, in the beginning was uh, very successful. In fact, incredible, really. Uh, he won battle after battle, conquered more and more territory, and uh, the more battles he won, the more wealth he acquired, and the more his fame spread throughout the known world. In the first 20 years of David's reign, well, his life was like a graph moving steadily upward. I mean, just he keeps going up, 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 and up, and uh, just being blessed and blessed and never knew a defeat in battle and so on. But all of that changed when he decided to commit adultery with another man's wife. The man's name was Uriah, who was one of David's mighty men, one of his top soldiers, and his wife's name was Bathsheba. We've already studied this, how that one day, while David had been king for about 20 years, had gained so much wealth, built himself a brand new palace, and was tired of living out in the trenches during the time of the year when kings go out to battle. So we read in the spring of the year when kings go out to fight these battles, David stayed home, sent Joab, his general, to fight for him. Well, that gave David a lot of free time on his hands. One evening, he's walking on top of his palace, which was a patio area, and uh, looks down as he's on the rooftop of another house below his palace, a very beautiful woman bathing. He lusted after her, sent his servants, and invited her to come meet him in the palace. She agreed. They had an affair. She went home, and David tried to put the whole thing behind him. It was a one-night fling, you know, just a one-time thing, and it's over. Until a few weeks later when she sends him word telling him she's pregnant. And so he tries to cover it by having Joab send her husband home from the battle, uh, thinking he would go home and lay with his wife and uh, think it was his child. Well, Uriah was too much of a man of character and honor. He didn't go home. He stayed with David's servants because... He couldn't go home and enjoy his wife and the comforts of his own home and bed while his buddies were out in the trenches, where David should have been. So David decides, well, this isn't going to work, sends him back to the battle with a message to give to Joab, the general, telling him to put your eye in the hottest part of the battle then pull your troops back at one point so that he dies in battle, which he did. So now David goes and invites Bathsheba to be his wife, and everyone thinks, what a wonderful king we have. Here one of his... Soldiers dies in battle, and he marries his widow and raises his child, the child of Uriah, not knowing what had happened. Of course, God knew. God always knows, doesn't he? A year passed, a year where David was pretty miserable, by the way. You know, when you're a man or woman of God, not like you're immune from sin, but when you sin, you feel pretty lousy, don't you? It's the Holy Spirit in you, working from within you to say, this is not good. Your fellowship with me is broken. You need to get it right. David rejected that for a whole year until God forced the issue by sending him Nathan the prophet. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 12. But after Nathan confronts David with his sin, he says, David, God has forgiven you. He's not going to kill you. You committed adultery and murder. Those were capital crimes. You deserve to die. But God has forgiven you. But he goes on to say, the Lord says to you, David, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives, 
and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. If that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes. And he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. So even though God forgave David, he pronounced some pretty severe consequences upon him for his sin. And guys, those consequences began with the rebellion of Absalom, and they brought some very dark days into David's life. In fact, they drove him so far into the pit of despair that as he writes the Psalms that he wrote during this period, and there's about a half a dozen of them, we get the impression that he was in such a deep despair over what was going on in his life that he longed for death to put him out of his misery. I mean, he had to endure the shame of public humiliation, the heartbreak of seeing his own son and some of his closest friends turn against him, as well as dealing with the constant uncertainty of his future as king of Israel. His days were full of anxiety and fear, and his nights were full of weeping and sorrow. In short, his whole world was crumbling down around him. And guys, it is at this point and into this context that the events of chapter 16 unfold. And really, chapter 16 divides itself pretty easily into three main parts. The first one we'll look at is the deception of Ziba. Verse 4, when David was a little past the top of the mountain. Now he's leaving Jerusalem. Word has come that Absalom is on his way with his army to engage David in battle. David loves the city of Jerusalem, loves its inhabitants, does not want the city to be turned into a bloodbath where many innocent lives would be lost all in Absalom's attempt to kill David. So David says to his servants and his soldiers who were loyal to him, let's just leave the city. we got to regroup. So they leave the city, cross the Kidron Valley, and now they're up on top of the Mount of Olives, working their way towards the wilderness in Jericho, which we'll read about in a second. But it says when they got past, a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, What do you mean to do with these? And Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Now, as we've already seen when we studied chapter 9, Ziba was one of uh, King Saul's servants. And as you remember, Saul had a number of sons. One of them was named Jonathan. Jonathan and David were best friends. Now, Jonathan, being Saul's son, was next in line for the throne. But you remember how that God took the throne away from Saul at one point, so he's going to give it to David. Jonathan was a very godly young man. And he realized that if God had chosen David to be the next king, it was futile to fight against the Lord. In fact, Jonathan only wanted God's will for David's life, so he purposed that he was going to help David in whatever way he could to achieve God's purpose for his life. In fact, they made a covenant with each other. And Jonathan said, David, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to do whatever I can do, protect you from my dad, because Saul wanted to kill David, obviously, 
I will do whatever I can do to help you be king. But when you are king, promise me, you'll protect my family and uh, treat us kindly. And David totally agreed to that. Well, we already saw that Jonathan wound up dying in battle. And uh, he only had one member of his immediate family left, and that was a lame son named Mephibosheth. And so David appointed Ziba as uh, Mephibosheth's chief servant and caretaker. He gave him the responsibility of overseeing the farming of his land and the tending of his livestock. And this way David could show kindness to the memory of his dear friend Jonathan and fulfill the vow he had made to him by treating whatever family he had left, in this case only one son, uh, with kindness. However, Ziba, who he had placed in charge of everything, was a wicked man who sought to use the political turmoil of Absalom's rebellion coupled with the stress and emotional turmoil David was, uh, was going through because of all that was going on in his life, Ziba decided to try to use all this to his advantage by deceiving David into giving him, giving to Ziba, everything David had earlier given to Mephibosheth. And so verse 3, then the king said, so Ziba joins him now on the Mount of Olives there, and the king said, well, where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, today... The house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. Now, as we're going to see in chapter 19, these were lies that Ziba told David. Uh, as we just said, Mephibosheth was lame. He couldn't get around very quickly without help. Ziba, knowing this, purposely leaves him behind and runs to David, uh, giving David the impression that, you know, Mephibosheth has turned you. And David said, well, where's your master's son? Where's Mephibosheth, right? And uh, Ziba said, well... He didn't come because he's actually joined forces with Absalom against you. In fact, David, he told me, and of course this is all a lie, but he told me that he believes that all of this has come upon you because God is judging you for stealing the kingdom from his father. In fact, he told me today God will return my father's kingdom to me. Now in his mind, in David's mind, this was another painful betrayal at the hands of somebody that he had loved and shown kindness to. The last thing David needed at this point was another friend turning against him. And so David, assuming Ziba was telling him the truth, not having any reason to doubt Ziba, and acting out of a sense of deep hurt, makes a hasty decree. Verse 4, So the king said to Ziba, Here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you. What a rat. I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. Guys, Ziba was the worst kind of a wicked opportunist. The kind that took advantage of the emotional fog David was in to pit him against somebody he loved and somebody who loved him for his own purposes. And Ziba had an agenda, obviously. He was hoping that David would make this decree, hoping that he could deceive David into thinking that uh, Mephibosheth had turned against him, knowing that David was hurt, devastated, by all those who had turned against him, not the least of which was Absalom, his own son. And uh, sure enough, Ziba was smart enough to realize that this was probably what David was going to do. And David, out of a sense of deep hurt, gives everything he gave to Mephibosheth over to Ziba. One pastor gives some good advice on this subject. Whether regarding a business deal or a marriage proposal, be careful you don't make decisions important decisions in the time of trial and emotion. 
During those times, your thinking isn't as clear as it would be otherwise. Instead, slow down and seek the Lord. Good advice. And we'll have more to say about old Zib later on in chapter 19, so we'll just leave that hanging for, for a little while, all right? So, first of all, the deception of Ziba. Secondly, we see the curses of Shimei. Before we look at that, let me just say this to you. When you're at a low point in life, some will try to take advantage of you. That's true. And others will simply kick you and even curse you when you're down. That's just how it is, especially when you're in leadership. So verse 5, now when King David came to Baharim, which was on the road to Jericho, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. You know, get out of Jerusalem. You know, come out of there. You don't belong there. You're not really the, the, the legitimate king. Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil, because you are a bloodthirsty man. It's interesting how some people can look at a situation and twist the facts to make the facts agree with what they choose to believe. It's just interesting to me, and I have seen this quite a bit in this last political cycle, election cycle where two people can look at the same things and see two opposite things in the process. Even if it means I have to twist the facts to make them fit my perception of reality, I'll do it. Because all that matters is things are looking the way I think they should look, not how they really look in truth. Some people choose to believe. They, they already have it made up in their mind what they're going to believe. You're not going to budge them from that. We see that when we witness the people, don't we? I mean, you can present them with all the facts of the gospel, the resurrection, all the things the Bible talks about. You can have the facts. You can make a very powerful argument. And you know what? If they have chosen to believe something contrary, no matter what you say or do, they're going to stick to what they believe, their reality. So pray for them. But here Shammai charges David with the demise of King Saul, so that he, David, could steal the kingdom from Saul and his descendants. He sees what has happened, listen, not as an, as an act of sedition and treason on the part of Absalom, but as the righteous retribution of God upon David, interesting, whom he believes is guilty of the blood of Saul and his sons. That David stole the kingdom. He's not the legitimate king. This is all the judgment of God on David's life. He's getting what he deserves, Shemai firmly believed. The problem was, first of all, David didn't have anything to do with the death of Saul and his sons. They died in battle. Secondly, David loved Saul, as we have seen when we studied 1 Samuel. David loved Saul and his family and treated them with great kindness, even to the point of sparing Saul's life a couple of times. Remember that? When Saul was chasing him in the wilderness, a couple of times David could have killed him. But he wouldn't do it, because he loved Saul and wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. Also, after the family of Saul was gone, David sought out the last living 
member of Jonathan's family to show kindness to. These are not the actions of a man who has has hated a family and has wiped them out. Thirdly, David was not a bloodthirsty man. Yeah, he was a man of war. He killed many men in battle. That's true. But never at any time did he shed innocent blood or the blood of the helpless or at any time did he ever enjoy killing. He did it out of necessity uh, against those who were the enemies of God. That's true. But it was never for sport. It was never for the pleasure of killing. Also, Shema was wrong because David did not bring Saul and his family to ruin. Saul did that all by himself uh, through his pride and rebellion against God. We studied that. And finally, God was dealing with David. These were the consequences uh, that God was allowing upon David because of his sin with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband Uriah. So God was involved in this situation. But it was not that God was judging David for stealing the kingdom from Saul. God gave that willingly to David. Well, verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please, let me go over and take off his head. Now, you know, they didn't fool around back then. It was, no, let's, let's stop. Let's try to negotiate with this guy. Let's invite him over for a coffee. Maybe we can talk some sense into him. No, they didn't. David, let me go over there and just lop his head off, okay? All right, uh, these are brutal guys. Um, but the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? Now, Zeruah was David's sister. Abishai was uh, one of David's nephews. Joab was another one, okay? Uh, a third, a hit, um, I forgot his name, was uh, killed uh, in battle. But um, these were David's nephews. They were mighty men in his army. And uh, one of them says, you know, Uncle, let me just, let me just whack this guy. Get him, shut him up. And David is like, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? Because they were hotheads, okay? He knew that. David says, so let him curse. Because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? I mean, David said to Abishai and to all his servants, see how my own son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite let him alone uh, and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. Now look, I appreciate David's, the way David handled the false accusations and hurtful words of Shammai. He didn't retaliate. He accepted the fact that he was in this situation because of his own sin. None of this would be happening if he hadn't done what he had done. So at least he's owning up to that. At least he's saying, you know what? I brought this on myself. I don't know what's going on with everything, and I don't know what God's going to do in my life. I just know that I'm in this place because of what I have done. Okay? In David's mind, guys, for all he knew, God had permanently removed him as king over Israel. And if that were the case, if that were true, then uh, Shema's curses could very well have been put into his mouth by the Spirit of God as part of his pronouncement of judgment upon David's life. Well, listen. David doesn't know what the future is going to hold or bring. Um, He's not giving up all hope. I mean, right now he's kind of adopted an attitude, well, you know, I don't know what God's doing, but I'm just going to accept whatever comes my way right now because it might be from God, punishing me in some way. And Shammai may be sent by God, have been sent by God to curse me, and, uh, you know, this might be it for me. But he doesn't give up all hope. He still maintains hope for the future. Okay, verse 12. He said, you know, let him curse. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction 
and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shammai went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and, and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. Look, David reasoned that if the words of Shammai were not of God, and that God was not cursing him or had was not removing him from being king indefinitely, then, you know, what Shammai was saying was wrong, and uh, he would be guilty of cursing the Lord's anointed, which was a fairly serious sin. And if that were true, then, you know, maybe God would have pity on me, David. So let him curse. Because if it's not from God, if this is just his hurtful words being thrown at me, you know, maybe God will have pity on me as he hears all that this guy is saying to me, you know, and, and all the false accusations he's throwing at me. And, uh, you know, let him alone. Uh, maybe God will bless me if, you know, maybe the Lord will feel sorry for me if he hasn't sent Shemai. But either way, uh, David, let Shemai continue to curse him, throwing stones, kicking up dust, because in that culture, that was basically like saying, I, want, I wish you were dead. So this is what Shemai was kind of pronouncing on David. Again, kicking him when he was down. And Spurgeon said, and I quote, It is very hard to bear, to bear a cowardly act. One is very apt to reply and use hard words to one who takes advantage of your position when you're down and deals you the coward's blow. Only the coward strikes a man when he is down. That's true. You know, the Bible says it's as spirit-filled mature Christians, Paul said this in Galatians 6, when a brother or sister stumbles and falls, we don't run over and point fingers or kick them when they're down. A true spirit-filled believer stoops down and helps to pick them up. And we encourage them. And maybe it's something that is not their fault, but they've been wrongly accused and people are criticizing them and they've just buckled under the weight of all these hateful words. Sometimes it is their fault. Sometimes they've done something wrong. Maybe they've made a mistake and, and went ahead and committed adultery like David or something like that. And now they've been devastated. Their sin has brought them down. What do we do? Do we kick them when they're down? Or we run over there and say, look, I, I'm a sinner too. I've made mistakes. Let me pray with you. Let me help you in any way I can to get back with God. Let's get together each week. We'll pray together. Maybe study God's word in the hopes that God will then restore you to uh, your marriage and so on, that kind of thing. Well, I think part of this, though, with David and Shammai, I think part of it was that David at that point had more important things on his mind than to worry uh, about how a disgruntled Benjamite felt about him. Which brings us, guys, to our third and final point this morning. We've seen the deception of Ziba, the curses of Shammai, and now it brings us to the advice of Ahithophel. Now, verse 15, Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And so it was when Hushai... Let me stop there now. So Absalom and his forces are now in Jerusalem. They have taken the royal city. No doubt Absalom has positioned himself on the royal throne in the palace. And so he has taken now charge of the city. And um, while he was there... One named Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom. And Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. Now, if you remember from our study last week, Hushai was a good friend of David, also one of his counselors, who initially left the city uh, and joined up with David. Clothes ripped, wearing ashes on his head. He was in mourning 
because he loved David, was loyal to David. But David said, you know, Hushai, you can help me more by going back to Jerusalem, pretending to be loyal to Absalom, because Ahithophel is going to be feeding him all kinds of counsel. And Ahithophel is a pretty sharp cookie. He's no doubt going to give him some good, wise counsel. I need you to counter the counsel of Ahithophel with counsel that sounds good, but will kind of misdirect Absalom away from what would no doubt be counsel that would bring me down and kind of, kind of confuse the plans of Absalom with your counsel. So here's Hushai, right? He comes into the city. He bows before the king. Long live the king. Long live the king. Notice he never says long live King Absalom. In his mind, I'm convinced he's saying long live the king, the rightful king, the guy I work for, okay? May he live long. But Absalom, knowing that Hushai was one of David's good friends and trusted confidants, um, is naturally surprised to see him. Verse 17, so Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom shall I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. Now, guys, Absalom should have been a little suspicious. But as we have talked about him, he was a very proud man and probably thought everybody just loved him and wanted to be on his team. Okay, I just get that impression, right? He should have been suspicious. But again, you know, why else would he not want to be with me? Who wouldn't want to be with me, all right? So he just believes that Hushai, you know, is there because he just loves Absalom so much, thinks he's the greatest thing in the world. You know, David's son Solomon would um, eventually write in the book of Proverbs something that I think is important here. Remember Proverbs 16, verse 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty look before a fall. <laughs> Absalom's decision to trust Hushai would be the very thing that God would eventually use to bring him down. Verse 20, Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give counsel as to what we should do. And Ahithophel, Ahithophel said to Absalom, well, go into your father's concubines. Remember now, David left 10 concubines in, in the palace to take care of things while he took everyone else out away from Jerusalem. And so now the counsel of Hithophel was, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. They're going to be strengthened. Why? Well, I think it's his word and words be rightly pointed out. He said, and I quote, It was customary for a new king to inherit the previous king's wives and harem. So when Absalom followed Hithophel's counsel, he was declaring that he was now king of Israel. By taking his father's concubines, Absalom was making himself totally abhorrent to his father and breaking down every possible bridge for reconciliation. The new king was telling his followers that there was no turning back and the revolution would continue. Unwittingly, he was doing even more. He was fulfilling Nathan's prophecy that David's wives would be violated in public. We just read that. David had been on the roof of his house when he lusted after Bathsheba, and that's where David's wives would be violated, end quote. Look, guys, part of the reason Ahithophel gave this radical advice to Absalom was more to protect himself, Ahithophel, than it was to help Absalom. You see... 
Ahithophel, I think, had more to lose than Absalom did. If for any reason Absalom and his father had made up, or would have made up, well, David would have forgiven his son, but probably not Ahithophel. So he probably would have, you know, charged uh, Ahithophel with treason, rebellion, probably executed him. So Ahithophel realized, we got to burn this bridge, man. we gotta, we got we to gotta burn any chance of reconciliation. Yeah, everyone else will feel like, well, this is no turning back now. we got to see this through to the end. But it was no doubt to help Ahithophel more than anybody. So verse 22, they pitched the tent for Absalom on the top of the house. So they put this thing out in the open. Of course, nobody saw them, him actually um, having sex with these women. But they pitched the tent for Absalom on the house of the top of the house. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Listen, guys, short of killing his father, David, this was the worst thing Absalom could have done to him. This was the ultimate act of humiliation and degradation toward his father. And it says a lot about the kind of person Absalom was. One commentator had this to say, he said, and I quote, Every part of the conduct of Absalom shows him to have been a most profligate young man. He was proud, vindictive, adulterous, incestuous, incestuous, uh, a parricide, and a reprobate to every good word and work, end quote. All right, it tells us what kind of person Absalom was, but it also, this counsel also shows, this disgraceful counsel, what kind of person Ahithophel was as well. Some of you weren't here last week to understand what I'm saying, so let me read it to you from the mouth of one pastor. He said, and I quote, who gives us deeper insight into this whole Ahithophel turning against David. He says, 2 Samuel 3, verse 11, tells us that Bathsheba's father was Eliam, one of David's mighty men. This also means that her grandfather was Ahithophel. This shows the power of bitterness. Ahithophel was willing to see these women abused, Absalom grievously sinned, and the kingdom of Israel suffer greatly, all simply to satisfy his bitter longing for revenge, end quote. You see, Ahithophel had been close to David, but when... David had committed adultery with his granddaughter and had Uriah killed. Uriah was a man of character. No doubt uh, Ahithophel loved Uriah dearly. But here's David now, violates his granddaughter, has his, uh, you know, uh, this man he adores probably, Ahithophel's granddaughter's husband, Uriah, murdered. And then David marries Bathsheba. It threw Ahithophel's family in great turmoil. And sowed a lot of bitterness into Ahithophel's heart against David. And now he wants to get even. And he doesn't care who he hurts in the process. He's going to get even with David. So verse 23, he gives him this advice. We read in verse 23, Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave him those days, was like one who had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. What the writer is saying is that the words of Ahithophel were so wise and so respected that when he spoke, it was almost as if God was speaking himself. And everybody just listened to what he had to say. Now, as I said earlier, guys, these were difficult and dark days for David. In fact, I can only think of one other time in David's life where his circumstances were this dire and dark. And that was when the Amalekites attacked David's home city of Ziklag. You remember that story at the end of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30? David and his men were out on a military campaign as they often would do. 
and they uh, left. They all lived in Ziklag, and uh, all the guys left their wives and kids there. Of course, you know they were all together. They were, you know, so you know it was like they were looked after each other. But as they're coming home from this particular military campaign, they see smoke in the distance, and it was coming from the direction of their hometown. No doubt, sickening feeling gripped their hearts, and they ran to the city only to find that their worst fear had been realized. Ziklag was on fire. In fact, it had been burned to the ground. They didn't know by who at this point. They run, ran into the city and uh, realized that every ounce of wealth that they had amassed over the years of military conquest was gone. The only good thing was that there were no bodies uh, anywhere, which meant that whoever had done this had taken captive their wives and kids. We read how that every man, and these were tough guys, every man lifted up his voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David did the same. They were so distraught and so overcome with sorrow and grief that they talked, some of them talked about killing David. What that would have accomplished, I have no idea. How it was David's fault, I don't know. But when you're really hurting, you want to lash out and blame somebody. And so in the midst of all this talk of killing David, as he's also grieving for his wives and children, we read in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 30, while everyone was accusing David and wanting to plot his death, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Listen to me. The answer to every trial, every tragedy, the answer to every painful circumstance is that you strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. You say, okay, great, sounds good. What exactly does that mean? Well, I'll give you four things quickly. They're pretty self-explanatory. They are not deep or profound. They are very basic. The problem with us sometimes, guys, we're always looking for some profound solution. The simple things are so simple and basic, we don't take them seriously. As Peter said, I'm going to put you in remembrance of some things that you already know. The problem is we tend to forget what is basic. And that's what we have to understand. Okay, these are basic principles. All right? And how you strengthen the self, yourself in the Lord your God whenever trial, adversity, heartache grips your life. First of all, the first one is prayer. Prayer. Ephesians 3, 14, and then verse 16, Paul said, and Paul echoed the same points in his epistles. Paul said, for this reason I bow my knee, so he's talking about prayer, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Holy Spirit in the inner man. The problem with too many of us is when adversity strikes, the first thing we want to do is Plan, make our plans, don't we? We make our plans, we do our little deal, and, and we're, we're you know, thinking how we're going to get even, we'll say, maybe with somebody that's hurt us. The first thing we need to do is get into the presence of God. Get into the presence of God and pray. Because that's where you're going to draw strength. His strength. Prayer is essential for building inner strength and hope for whatever circumstance you find yourself in. Paul said this. He said, and Paul was a guy who was no stranger to adversity. He said, I have strengthened myself in the presence of God. And what this has done is strengthened my inner man to give me inner support that I'm not crushed by all the outward pressures I'm going through. There is something called a sinkhole. We all know what that is in the literal physical sense. When water, uh, an underground stream or a fountain or a water... A main that is broken, 
uh, erodes the soil underneath the ground so that eventually what is built on top of the soil, the soil is not strong enough to support it and everything comes crashing into this sometimes massive sinkhole, right? We can suffer emotional sinkholes where we are not, we are not spending time in God's presence to strengthen the inner man. And if we are not in God's presence, strengthening the inner man through prayer, eventually all the pressures, all the weight of whatever's going on outwardly in our lives, well, it's pressing down, pressing down, and finally we're going to have an emotional cave-in, a breakdown. It happens all the time. Christians are not immune. Prayer is essential. The second thing is praise. Praise. David would write in numerous psalms, I'll just mention two, Psalm 57 and Psalm 145. He said, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give you praise. And I believe what David is saying is, Lord, my heart is steadfast. It's strong because I make it a point to constantly sing your praises. He said, every day I will praise you. I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. This was a pattern of David's life. Again, who was no stranger to adversity. Guys, praise is a way of getting our eyes off of our problems, our situations, and forcing us to look up. It refocuses us. It gets our attention on the, on the one who is our God, who has promised to take care of us. I mean, it's so easy to get your eyes on the circumstance, on the problem, and it overwhelms you. And you lose sight of who is with you, God, who you belong to, to whom nothing is impossible. So, you know, God is bigger than any problem. And praise is a way of causing us to focus on God, his greatness, his power, and so on. And that will strengthen us in the Lord our God. The third one is promises. So we have prayer, praise, thirdly, promises. And by that I mean to meditate on and cling to the promises in God's word. Remember what Psalm 23, David said. You know, the first thing the devil tells us when we go through adversity is that God is what? Forsaken us. Just like Shemai. You're going through this because you deserve it. This is a judgment of God, you know. And if you think God is judging you, certainly he's forsaken you, And is the idea. That's what the devil wants. But David said, Yea, though I walk, Psalm 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of uh, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Jesus echoed that, didn't he, when he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we have to understand that no matter what we're going through, God has not forsaken us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is with you. you got to get that nailed down right away. I mean, if we feel that God is against us, we will not be able to handle that, the adversity. And guys, let me just say this. Even if you feel God has abandoned you, you've got to go to the Word of God to uh, remember what God has said. It's so easy to feel our way through our Christianity which is exactly what the devil wants. He wants you to feel. He wants you to look at things and, what do you feel? I don't care how I feel. I feel lousy, okay? But I'm going to go to the Word of God and see what God has said about, is He with me? And, and, and how will never leave me? And uh, in the time of trouble, I cry out to you and you will listen to me. God is a strong tower. The righteous run into Him and are safe in times of adversity. I mean, these are things we need to cling to. These are the precious promises of God. And they are directed at every area of our life. As I've said before, for every side there is a psalm. For every problem there is a proverb. And that's, just, that's the way it is throughout the entire Word of God. You've got to run to the Word of God and cling to His promises. And there are promises in God's word that deal with everything you can go through in life. Not the least of which is Philippians 4, verse 19. And my God shall supply 
all your needs. You fill in the blank. Are they physical needs, financial needs, uh, medical needs? Are they spiritual needs, emotional, whatever, whatever they are? God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And then finally, the fourth one is pause. This is a big one. Pause. <laughs> when I talk about pause, I mean to set aside time on a regular basis. And when I say regular basis, I mean every three months. Okay? On a regular basis to stop working, stop doing chores, stop running the kids to endless activities, and even stop serving God for a while to get alone with him in quiet and peace and solitude. Get alone with the Lord. As we have moved away from this principle more and more in our busy American Christianity, we've become more and more like Martha, right? Whom Jesus looked at and said, Martha, Martha, you poor thing. Okay. You are burdened and stressed out about many things. Mary, she has found the better part. Mary sat. If you study that passage, Mary, it's not that Mary didn't serve at all. She had a balance. She served, but her real love and joy was to get into Jesus' presence where she could sit and soak up his love and his wisdom and so on. Service is good, not bad, but fellowship with the Lord is better. So serve the Lord, okay, but your goal should be that you want to spend time in his presence because that's where you're going to draw your strength. Jesus did this, right, throughout his earthly ministry. He would often withdraw from the crowds to spend time alone with his fathers every day. In fact, every morning he started before the breaking of day uh, he got alone in a quiet place to spend time with his father, and so on. Let me just say this, and we're done. As you take time each day to strengthen yourself in the Lord your God by doing the very simple things we've just outlined, you'll be able to say like Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed, what? Day by day. Good title for a radio ministry, by the way. <laughs> I like that. Kind of catchy. Guys, we are living in... David found himself in dark days. This is the title of this message, Dark Days. Most of us believe we've gotten a reprieve with this president. Can I just encourage you once again not to look to Donald Trump to be your savior or to save America? I hope and pray he's the best president we've ever had. But I know that, again, revival is not going to come from the White House. It has to come from our house as the people of God. Remember what God said back in the Old Testament, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways? Think the church is so pure in these last days? Think again. If my people will do this, then I will hear their prayer from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So may God give us grace, right? These are dark days. I pray we have gotten a reprieve, and I pray for revival. I pray that God would pour his spirit out, and we've been praying for years that Chicago would be the epicenter. As the murder capital of the United States, years ago under Moody, it was the spiritual capital of the United States, the soul-winning capital of the United States. That is my prayer for Chicago, that God would pour his spirit out in revival, and it would, Chicago would be the epicenter. And the gangbangers, drug dealers, would put down the guns pick up Bibles and become preachers of righteousness, that we would see so many people saved, it would be a miracle. And then it would spread throughout the entire nation. That's our prayer. We need revival. Revival is not going to come except through brokenness and repentance. And it starts at the house of God. 
Father, we thank you for your word and how your word, Lord, does give us great hope. It gives us, Lord, simple instruction because you're not speaking to theologians and uh, super intellectuals. You're speaking to your children. Many of us are just simple folks. We need simple truths. And you're a God who gives us those truths in your word. A child can read and understand. And we know, Lord, that what we need to do is draw close to you. Stay close to you. Stay in your presence. Stay in your word. And we just thank you, Lord, that you're a gracious God, that you love us. And we just pray that you would continue to lead our lives for your glory. Father, we are living in dark days, and maybe the sun is shining in our hearts because we know you. But there's a world out there that is really in darkness. And they're really in a bad way. And Lord, you want us to go out among them to share the good news. And so, Lord, give us a love for the lost. Father, all these people who are protesting, all these progressives and liberals and feminists and homosexuals, all the people that so hate this president, I I used to have contempt for them. But, Lord, you've replaced that with compassion because they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. They are not our enemies. They are are in the very darkness we ourselves were once in. Give us love for them, Lord. A heart of prayer. And Lord, bring them out of the darkness into your marvelous light. And we love you, Lord, and thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.